Father, we're grateful for the chance to continue our study tonight. We pray that it would be to your glory and to our good. We thank you for these remarkable subjects, some mysterious, some especially precious. And as we enter into this last section of the book, as we consider the last things, we pray that you'd help us to be uh, careful students, uh, but a remarkable people of hope based on uh, what you've revealed, revealed our future to be. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome to you all. Um, review. Anybody, a question about the family, the world, or the state from last week? Any concerns? Any questions that have come up in the interim? All right. Um, let me then uh, begin with tonight's topics. We're doing perseverance, unpardonable sin, and mortality. Uh, we're on page 241. Perseverance, God keeps his people safe. Uh, this is one of the <clears throat> famous five points of Calvinism. It's the P in TULIP, uh, the concluding uh, doctrine of those doctrines of grace um, and it is a particularly precious doctrine and I think uh, Dr. Packer's uh, unpacking of it uh, is grand. Uh, it's concise but it covers everything of any moment and the most precious things that we want to hear about uh, our Savior God. And straight off Dr. Packer uh, brings up a minor criticism to the TULIP scheme um, that uh, is well worth hearing nevertheless. Uh, he thinks it's better to talk about the preservation of the saints rather than the perseverance of the saints. And that's because perseverance puts the focus on the, you and I as persevering now, that is a tremendously heartening subject that we will persevere. But the more important point is why we're going to persevere. And it's not because we're such uh, uh, wonderful um, super Christians and uh, uh, godly uh, beyond imagination, but precisely because uh, God is going to uh, persist in persevering with us. Um, the and uh, that first full paragraph puts it beautifully. Um, the reason is that Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, persists in persevering believers. Um, that's the doctrine in essence, uh, and uh, it doesn't hurt to keep talking about the perseverance, but that's where the uh, emphasis belongs. Um, in, in other words, with the subtitle, God keeps his people safe. Now, Dr. Packer wants to draw attention to a number of uh, important texts. And um, I want to make reference just to a few of them. He says that scripture uh, em emphasizes uh, this truth. And I, I'd like to add <laughs> scripture everywhere emphasizes this truth. Um, it, it is just... Uh, pervasive, the doctrine of perseverance. Um, and uh, 
he notes that this was the father's promise to Jesus with respect to his work of salvation. And we'll look especially just at the first verse of chapter, first verse mentioned of chapter 6, verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You see, this is the great covenant of redemption, the father's calling to the son to come and save a people, and he gives them, the people in his elective love, that are going to be saved, and the ones that are given, uh, they will come by the power of the Spirit, and Jesus will never cast them out. On the other hand, this is a, a direct promise from Jesus to his people in John 10. I'll just read verse 28. Concerning his disciples, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then finally, Dr. Packer mentions uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus before his death. Uh, he goes before the Father and uh, rehearses the, the good things that have been done in the work of salvation. And uh, he prays then on behalf of his followers. And he prays that uh, they would be kept forever um, uh, to, to glory. And Dr. Packer says it's inconceivable that this prayer to the, uh, to the Father from the Son, which continues to be authored, the Romans and Hebrews passages, in his ongoing intercession, it's inconceivable that that prayer would not be answered favorably to the Son that offers it. So uh, those are uh, some powerful scripture uh, considerations that ground our doctrine and Dr. Packer then, uh, at the bottom of uh, 241 and on to 242, uh, elaborates on this point even more wonderfully, showing how pervasive the idea uh, that, in fact, the conception of salvation is that of a uni unified whole. It's not different discrete acts, principally. It's one grand plan that has different parts, Every part essential to the whole. And so uh, here's the way that uh, Paul puts it in Romans 8 at 29. Those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you feel the force of that? Those who, those who, those who, exactly the same group with respect to every one of these great works. Foreknowledge, predestination, uh, the, the end to be conformed to the image of the Son. They're called, they're justified, and they're glorified very powerful consideration. Uh, and then finally, on the scripture proofs to draw your attention to Philippians 1.6, uh, Paul can rejoice about what he hears from the people of Philippi in their growth in Christ because he knows that God certainly will not fail to complete the good work 
that he's begun in them. Uh, very um, uh, um, appropriate texts, very powerful texts, uh, and um, of course he could have gone on. You see, uh, this truth summarized in the Westminster Confession uh, there on 242, cited from uh, chapter 17, uh, paragraph 1, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Uh, and uh, so, um, the, uh, the means uh, that we're persevering in, that is faith and living the Christian life, uh, follow from God's persevering work. Um, and it's impossible that that plan should fail. In fact, the Westminster Confession in section two of that same chapter uh, puts it quite powerfully. It says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own will, but on the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from, which, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility that the saints will persevere. Uh, boy, there couldn't be any more powerful statement of the truth. Rooting our hope to be in heaven in every important factor with respect to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God's attributes, God's purposes, God's revelation in time and space, God's covenant faithfulness. So it's a very, very powerful doctrine. Now, Dr. Packer offers a caveat in the uh, last part of that paragraph. He said, this doesn't mean that everybody who ever professes to be converted will be saved because there are false professors. Uh, Jesus, in the parable of the sower that Dr. Packer uh, uh, cites, talks about uh, the seed that's sown on the rocky ground and doesn't have any root and it, it seems to spring up for a while but it parches and then on the thorny ground and it gets choked out by the cares of the world and Dr. Packer mentions as well uh, the um, saying of Jesus that not everyone who says Lord Lord he's going to acknowledge even those who've done remarkable things on the face of it outwardly uh, because they weren't in fact genuine uh, the, uh, and so he says they won't be acknowledged. The text is actually a little more forceful than that. Uh, Jesus says to them positively, depart from me. I never knew you. So only those who show that the new life, uh, of God's regenerating grace is in them. They show it by growing in holiness and in neighbor love, uh, 
Uh, it's only these that are entitled to believe themselves, believe them, that they're, they're secure in Christ. Um, and now here is, he's entering into polemic. One of the chief uh, accusations against this doctrine is if you tell people that uh, their salvation is certain and it, it couldn't be more certain, then it's going to lead to uh, antinomianism loose and careless living uh, and arrogant presumption and Dr. Packer says that that is a total misconception it couldn't uh, uh, be more uh, um, remarkably misunderstanding the matter and so he's going to go on and explain it a little bit he's going to notice that uh, true believers sometimes uh, fall back Um, they get caught up in sin but the first thing he insists on is that when they act this way, they're uh, acting against their own uh, nature. They uh, and thus they grieve themselves uh, so much so uh, that the misery will always finally lead them to seek and find a restoration. Uh, and. They look back on such lapses as if they'd lost their mind. Uh, And then here's the sentence at the top of uh, 243 that I think is so powerful uh, with respect to this point. Um, uh, He says, when regenerate believers act in character, they manifest a humble, grateful desire to please the God who saved them. And now here's the point. And the knowledge that he has pledged to keep them safe forever simply increases this desire to live in obedient faithfulness to God. You see, that's so far from it leading to looseness. That knowledge becomes part of the motivation uh, and is part of our joy in seeking to live out uh, such a glorious gift. Um, I have one more point I want to add here, but uh, um, anybody question about any of this uh, thus far that you'd like to raise? All right, I'm not seeing. I have a question. Yes. Packer has cited Westminster Confession at at several points in the book, has he not? Yes, that's Um, correct. No, he does. He doesn't, at the beginning of that paragraph you cite, the last paragraph in the book, it says sometimes the regenerate backslide fall into gross sin. Maybe you're going to make this point, but isn't that, wouldn't, it seems like a layup to talk about Westminster. I had to look this up. I had to Google it. But 17.3, where they talk about sometimes people, they fall into sin for a time, but they, but they'll come back if they're, yes. if they're, if they're and it's one of my favorite parts of the confession. I couldn't remember <laughs> a chapter and verse on it. But um, well, you, if you have it in front of you, read it. But, oh, um, sure. Uh, sorry, I uh, I looked it up. Uh, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts and have their hearts hardened, their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Um, the excerpt I have ends there. It's a Grace 21, but it, uh, where is it? it? 
Where's the rest of it, Dave? Nevertheless, isn't there more to it? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I don't have my confession near, near oh, me here, though. Sorry, I, I Googled it and got it from it. It's 17.3. Um, well, it is a powerful, powerful section of the confession. Not only uh, very um, aptly put strong doctrine, but wonderful pastoral encouragement included right. in it. And I understand that that's one of my favorite parts of confession as well, Chris. Right. Well, what, why, why do you think Packer didn't cite it? I'm just, uh, I know you can't read his mind, but is he, uh, would there be a reason why he would mention this kind of doctrine and then not, he doesn't give a scripture reference or anything. He just as well, sometimes this happens. Yeah. I expect it's just because he's, he's referred to it once and, uh, yeah. he, he doesn't want it to turn into a kind of uh, commentary on the Westminster Confession. That would be okay. my guess. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm glad you brought that up, though, Chris. Um, yeah. Anybody else on this? All right. Uh, let me conclude w uh, with this um, uh, point. Um, one of the chief objections scripturally to this doctrine uh, runs something like this. The scripture is full of all kinds of warnings to Christians not to fall away, uh, not to take your eyes off the prize, but rather to run the race and so on. And, and these scripture warnings, the opponents of the doctrine say, imply that uh, it must be possible for a Christian to fall away. Um, otherwise, they're meaningless. That's the objection. And it's an objection that often uh, troubles people. Um, and I, I could explain uh, in, in prose um, why that's a mistake. But in Robert Dabney's book, The Five Points of Calvinism, he gives, gives the most powerful illustration that completely refutes that objection. And I thought I, I would just read it uh, to you. Um, so he says, let me tell you a little parable. I watch a wise, intelligent, watchful and loving mother who is busy about her housework. There is a bright little girl playing around the room the mother's darling. I hear the mother say to her, take care, baby dear, don't go near that bright fire, for you might get burned. Do I argue thus, hear that the woman's words, hearing the woman's words, do I infer from them that the woman's mind is made up to let that darling child burn itself to death unless its own watchfulness shall suffice to keep it away from the fire. The caution of an ignorant, impulsive, and fickle child. What a heartless mother that would be. But I do not infer anything of the sort, unless I'm a heartless fool. For I know this mother knows the child is a rational creature, and that rational creatures have uh, one means of dealing with uh, rational creatures to have them keep at a safe distance from a fire 
uh, is warnings. Therefore, she does right to address such cautions to the child. She would not speak thus if she thought it were a mere kitten or puppy dog and would reply on nothing short of and would rely on the dog just being tied up by the neck to the table. But I also know that watchful mother's mind is fully made up that the darling child shall not burn itself at this fire. If the little one's impulsiveness and short memory cause it to neglect the maternal cautions, I know that shall see the good woman instantly drop her instruments of labor and draw the child back with physical force from the fire, and then most rationally renew her cautions to the child as a reasonable agent, and that with more emphasis. And if the little one proves still heedless and willful, I shall see her again rescued by physical force, and at last I shall see the mother impressing her cautions on the child's mind more effectively, perhaps by passionate caresses, or perhaps by a good switching, both alike expressions of faithful love. Do you see that point? The mother's warnings don't in the least imply that she's going to let that child perish in the fire. But they're part of how rational creatures are kept for going, from going astray. And so God's warnings to us, we ought to heed, take them seriously. That's part of the tutelage that leads us to be self-disciplined people with respect to uprightness. But it doesn't imply at all that if we're foolhardy and don't follow what we're told to do, that the, our God, our Heavenly Father, is going to leave us to perish. Well, I've always counted that as such a precious um, part of uh, Daphne's work. In fact, I think that may be the finest work on the five points that I know of. Uh, somebody brought it back into print for a time, but uh, uh, if anybody's interested in it, I've uh, done a transcript of it that I could send out. So if you uh, would like to look further, just email me and uh, I'll, I'll be happy to send it out. Any questions about that objection and uh, how to counter it? All right. Very good. Uh, let's press on. Here is a um, uh, doctrine that uh, has uh, seemed dark and impenetrable at times. It's certainly been controversial in the history of the church. And I think Dr. Packer does a wonderful job helping us to understand uh, what the Bible means by uh, the unpardonable sin. Uh, his summary of the whole, only impenitence cannot be forgiven. Uh, and that's, a, I think, a great point. But let's see how it gets there. There are three places in the scripture where there's a discussion of this uh, uh, the main one that uh, Dr. Packer's looking at is the one in uh, uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, chapter 3 at verse 28. Um, and it's a warning uh, that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. Um, they've accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus calls this um, 
potentially blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and if it were, it would be unpardonable, both in this world and in the next. Um, the um, he he uh, warns them that this isn't just a mistake; that it is in fact um, playing brinkmanship with uh, peril that will destroy you. Um, notice that Jesus um, did say that if people blasphemed against him in ignorance, he could they could be forgiven. Um, but rather, what's going on here is that these people know better. They know inwardly that Jesus is divine. And yet they're simply not willing in their spite and hatred to acknowledge what must be true by the things they've seen with their own eyes. Nicodemus got it. He came and said to Jesus, we know you must be a teacher sent from God, for no one could do the things you do, lest God uh, were with him. The, um, so on 2.45, uh, Packer repeats, they were not ignorant. They were stifling conviction and smothering real, if welcome, unwelcome knowledge. They were resolutely shutting their eyes to the light and callousing their conscience by calling it darkness. Um, a beautiful way of finishing that paragraph, noticing this principle, that they were acting irrationally, and uh, irrational reasoning is a regular sign of conviction being resisted. I think that's uh, well worth um, putting to memory and uh, using it as partly the way you discern the truth in this world. I think it is a, 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 a truism. Well, um, the um, Packer goes on in the next paragraph to want to analyze this a little more carefully. Uh, and he wants to say that w- what happens is that you come to see the reality of God at work and an anti-God spirit arises. And if that becomes absolutely uh, predominant to the hardening of the heart against any remorse from your guilt, it means that remorse can never have its true fruit which is repentance. There'll never be repentance. And the non-existence of repentance makes forgiveness impossible. That's a horrible pattern. Uh, And it ought to lead us to conclude that it's crucial then to so live as to nurture a spirit of remorse for our sin and have that uh, remorse bear fruit in true repentance Uh, because apart from repentance there's no forgiveness possible Um, so here we have concise theology concisely in the next paragraph he puts it all in a sentence uh, callousing one's conscience by dishonest reasoning so as to justify denial of God's power in Christ and rejection of his claims upon one is then the formula 
of the unpardonable sin. And most Orthodox authors, when they consider this uh, point, um, these are adjectives that they use to get at what's at root. Persistence, flagrant, willful, a decisive judgment against a plain work of God. Dr. Packer wants to draw our attention also to another version of the same truth found in Hebrews chapter 6 at verses 4 through 8. Uh, here too, um, there's the description of one who had been on the surface uh, uh, united to Christ and to his body, but um, they, uh, under difficulties, fall away. And Dr. Packer offers some lovely counsel here, the last sentence, uh, last two sentences on 245. He says, Christians who fear that they may have committed the unpardonable sin show by their very anxiety that they have not done so. Persons who have committed it are unremorseful, unconcerned. Indeed, typically, they don't care. Um, Jesus saw the Pharisees walking up to the brink on this point, and it was his strong language to them, uh, Dr. Packer says, was to try and keep them from falling into that uh, disastrous sin. Um, well, any questions on the uh, unforgivable sin? Um, Dave? Yes. It's Jenny. Um, so it seems like um, in going through these two chapters that um, for ourselves and for others that it's important. I mean, we want answers more quickly than we get them sometimes on our own state or someone else's state in a Christian life. And um, it's easy sometimes for us to say, well, he or she just isn't a Christian. Right. And um, I think through observing you going through all the different trials with the SJC and the various things that you've dealt with, that it's important for us to hold judgment on that because we don't know when someone is going to repent. Sometimes the Lord um, continues that unrepentance and um, heedlessness, neglect or arrogance for a long time. And it's shocking sometimes um, how long it takes, but um, it's just wonderful that we know, you know, the whole scheme of things that it's the Lord who um, is the one who is either going to save and show that the person is saved and or not. Right. Um, right. Just um, we. It's sometimes we want the Christian life to be a nice little neat package. You know, that, oh, we're Christians, and we're going to raise our kids Christian, and they're going to be Christians, and it's all going to be, you know. Um, it's not like that. Right. Yeah, and, and remember, from back on our chapter on discipline, uh, 
that the goal of discipline, especially in the formal discipline of the church, even though it may put a person out of the church, excommunication, um, the design of it is, in a sense, nicely captured by what Dr. Packer had said, um, that the person comes to think, I've lost my mind acting and talking in this way. And mm-hmm. finally comes to remorse and repentance and restoration. And the, the whole goal of it is restoration. Yeah, and repentance. And one of the, sh- I think from, I don't know, one of the shocking things to witness is when a person has repented and the church won't accept it. Oh, yeah. That's just really strange. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Other questions, comments on uh, the unforgivable sin? So you said the Pharisees got close to committing it. Were there any examples, you think, in Scripture of people that did? I don't know that... uh, uh, Well... um, Um, certainly 1 John um, seems to have some in view they're not named uh, but his version of the discussion of this seems to have particular people in in view Um, and you could think of other people who had great falls in the course of redemptive history uh, and might think that perhaps uh, certainly Judas, uh, the component parts of the sin are all possible for him. But I, I don't know of anyone that's actually named Do you have a further thought on that, Austin? Oh, no, I was just wondering. Is Pharaoh, is he also a considerator? Um, I suppose it's possible. Um, you know, the, the text has it that at least a good bit of uh, what God did to try and give signs to authenticate Moses could be reproduced by the magicians of Egypt. And and that may have led to perplexity and uh, confusion on the part of Pharaoh. Um, but uh, certainly, the, the, the thing that's missing is that he just won't go along with the program. He doesn't attribute uh, that to the powers of darkness. I, I, I guess that's the way I would put it. Other thoughts on the unforgivable sin? 
then let's uh, press on to mortality. Um, the um, this is a beautiful ch- chapter. Um, the Christian needs not fear death, and he begins with that lovely passage uh, from Paul in, Phil- in Philippians: "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." And Paul's perplexity as to what he ought to want, uh, given those two options. And what a wonderful way to look at the world. Um, Dr. Packer begins the discussion of morality, helping us to get our bearings. Um, he speculates what would have been the case for human beings if there had not been a fall. Would they go out of this world in any sense, or would there have been some kind of transition? And he uh, rightly uh, says that speculation probably isn't all that helpful here. Uh, There have been those who speculated, um, speculated that um, after the the, uh, probation had been followed, uh, there have been those who thought that there would have been a kind of transformation like glorification that would have taken place with Adam and Eve. Um, There are two reasons for thinking that. One is that, uh, in a sense, since Christ is the second Adam, and since the fruit of his redeeming work is the glorification of God's people, uh, that, that... there's a nice logical consistency to the thought that his goal always was glorification uh, and that goal is being now uh, pursued by the second Adam. Um, A second reason for thinking that that's possible is that um, remember in their uh, probationary state, Adam and Eve were not all that they would be. Uh, We don't understand all of it. We're not given very much information. The confession just says that uh, uh, they were created upright but mutable. And that couldn't be more true because they did change. We know that they were changeable. But we also know that um, the glorified believer won't be changeable in that sense anymore. Uh, They'll be perfectly um, uh, uh, filled with righteousness uh, and no possibility of um, turning away from it. So that had they passed the uh, the, uh, probation, um, it's likely that they would have been glorified, that is, put into that circumstance where uh, they would never again have the possibility of falling. Does that make any sense? All right. Uh, But in any case, we don't know. Um, And what what we do know is that the separation of body and soul through what we call death or bodily death is uh, the result of sin and the judgment of God against sin. And that's plainly taught throughout Scripture. And that this is a certainty of life uh, other than the possibility that Christ would return uh, while some are alive. Um, Notice that 
strictly speaking, death is not the separation of body and soul. Uh, Strictly speaking, death is spiritual separation from God as your blessedness. And death, bodily death, is a sign and emblem of that separation. Uh, The thing that is most precious in our existence and and, uh, so crucial to who we are is the union of soul and body. So that that separation is a horrifying separation to us viscerally. And that's a reminder that it was even worse to have our ourselves separated from God as our uh, chief blessing. And uh, what misery that uh, brought upon us. Um, the um, He says, uh, naturally, therefore, death appears as an enemy. I, I'd like to say it uh, unnaturally natural is the idea that death is an enemy and a terror. Uh, I'm just playing around a little bit here, but uh, naturally that has fallen. It's unnatural to us, uh, death, and uh, therefore um, that's why it is such an enemy and uh, such a terror. Um, But the terror of physical death is abolished for believers, uh, though the unpleasantness of dying remains. And for some much more unpleasant than others. But he notes that Jesus himself passed through a traumatic death and um, that he, and this is the top of 248, this is a beautiful uh, thing to have in your heart. Jesus lives now to support his servants as they move out of this world to the place that he's prepared for them in the world to come. That, that's the teaching of John 14, 2 and 3. Um, that, that Jesus himself is there to minister to his servants as they die, to move them from this old world to the place that he's prepared in his father's uh, house. And I think that's a precious point. Um so Dr. Packer nicely puts it, that we should look at our upcoming death as an appointment on Jesus's calendar. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's wonderful and that Jesus is not going to miss that appointment. Um, and that's why Paul could use those wonderful phrases, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, and... Uh, for to be away from the body means to be at home from the Lord. Um, the um, Now, uh, Dr. Packer needs to clear up some uh, mistakes that people easily make on this question. Um, the uh, truth of the matter is that at death, the souls of believers um, are made perfect in holiness and they enter into the uh, glories of heavenly life. Um, the um, some, he says, not believing this, posit a purgatorial discipline after death that is really a kind of further stage of sanctification. Purgatory um, 
one writer has put it, is the common characteristic of all false religions. Because it's based in the premise of false religion. That is, it must be by our own efforts that we overcome uh, the penalty of sin. Uh, It's been understood that the idea came early into the Christian church, probably through two channels, uh, a Jewish channel, uh, a perversion of the doctrine of Hades in the Old Testament, and a Platonic channel through the uh, theologian origins, restorationism, uh, that deeply perverted Christian thinking on this subject. And thus, purgatory, a place of purification of heart and refining of character uh, to uh, prepare for heaven. Uh, I'll say a word further on it. It's it's rooted in this idea that um, sin has two penalties, one a spiritual penalty and another uh, this worldly penalty. And although Rome holds that uh, Christ's death is for the spiritual penalty of sin, uh, purgatory is rooted in the idea that you've still got to pay off the this worldly penalties um, and, and to be purified and, and made fit for heaven. Um, now, Dr. Packer is very straightforward. Uh, this belief is neither scriptural nor rational. And he notes in one felt swoop, uh, if at Christ's coming, saints alive on the earth are perfected morally and spiritually in the moment of their bodily transformation, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following teaches, It is only natural to suppose that the same is done for each believer in the moment of death, when the mortal body is left behind. So, uh, no no place for purgatory. It is utterly uh, contrary to the gospel teaching, and it uh, is is irrational, as uh, Dr. Packer insists. The second error, well, let me stop there and see if anyone has a concern with the question of purgatory. All right. The second uh, one is one of my favorites. Um, This is in the middle of that, or near the end of that paragraph. Others posit unconsciousness, soul sleep, between death and resurrection. So that when you die, uh, you are in some kind of state of suspended animation uh, until uh, the um, uh, resurrection day. Uh, This is one of my favorites because it gives me an opportunity to uh, mention uh, uh, (laughs) uh, psychopanachia. Psychopanachia. It's one of my favorite books. Here's the full title. Psychopanachia, or A Refutation of the Error Entertained by Some Unskillful Persons Who Ignorantly Imagine That in the Interval Between Death and the Judgment, the Soul Sleeps, Together with an Explanation of the Condition and Life of the Soul, 
after this present life. Any idea? Anyone <laughs> whose book that is? That's John Calvin at 25 years of age, 1534. It's the second book he wrote, Psychopanachia, <laughs> uh, um, and uh, an assault, all out assault, a scriptural assault on the idea of soul sleep. And it, we don't know enough of history today to even entertain why that was so important to him. But at the time, especially in the Anabaptist movement, this notion arose of soul sleep, and uh, and it was used in quite a bizarre way. But a lot of people were attracted to it because uh, they thought that it wiped out the doctrine of purgatory, and so there were more motives than exegetical that led to it. And in any case, Calvin felt called to. Uh, in his first really major biblical theological work uh, to write an assault on it. Um, But the scripture, in fact, in all the places where you have any kind of reference to the question, always speaks of after death being a matter of conscious relationships, involvements, and enjoyments. Uh, Certainly, Jesus' words to the thief Uh, ought to settle the question, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Um, uh, Some concluding remarks. Death is decisive for destiny. Uh, We think of uh, uh, Hebrews. uh, It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. Uh, Death is gain for believers. Um, uh, Because we are closer to Christ. But Dr. Packer notes that disembodiment of itself is not gain because bodies are crucially a part of the expression and experience of what it means to be human. Uh, And to be without a body is to be impoverished in some sense. That's why when Paul talks about all this, he says he wants to be clothed. That that is to be re-embodied rather than unclothed. There's a sense in which disobedient, disembodied, it's it's like nakedness. Um, The um, but here's the calculus. Um, Life as a Christian is great. Life in the intermediate state is better than the life in this world, full of sin and woe. The life of the final resurrection will be better still. In fact, it will be the best. And this is what God has in store for all his children. And he rightly ends the chapter with Alleluia. Um, uh, Let me add one thing here um, that I think is a a wonderful kind of coda to this. And uh, Richard Gaffin, uh, my doctoral advisor and uh, outstanding uh, theologian and exegete, uh, taught many years at Westminster Seminary. Gaffin has paid a good bit of attention to the significance of the resurrection in the New Testament. And so here's one thing to add. Uh, I'll read a quote from him. What he wants to say is that we should not just think of resurrection as an end-time thing. 
But in fact, there's a sense in which the resurrection uh, has already taken place for the believer. Here's the way he puts it. The resurrection of Christ is the stupendous miracle that validates the truth of the Bible and Christianity. But it is much more than that. It is the actual beginning of resurrection harvest in which those united to Christ by faith have an assured place. Not only in the future, at his return, in their own bodily resurrection, like his, but also presently, as he already shares with them his resurrection life through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits mean the beginning of the harvest has begun, and these are the first fruits brought in. But whenever there's first fruits, it means the rest of the harvest is going to continue to be brought in. And the point is then that Jesus, the first fruits, means that the harvest has begun because in his work through the Holy Spirit of regeneration, he has resurrected them already. And from that point on, it's just a matter of waiting to see that resurrection come fully into its own. As more and more we die to sin in this world and come alive to Christ, and finally, when we're reunited when we're united with our resurrection body and perfectly glorified and the harvest will be brought in. But do you get the point? The resurrection has already begun. It's begun in the preaching of the gospel to power the Holy Spirit. People are born again and raised in the newness of life. That's, a, that's an astonishing, uh, I think, proposition and one that ought to be part of our self-consciousness as we live in a dark and broken and fallen world, for us the resurrection has already begun. Well, there you have it. Um, next week we'll look at second coming, general resurrection, and judgment seat. Uh, but for now we've had uh, perseverance, unpardonable sin, and uh, mortality. Anybody a question uh, or comment on uh Resurrection in particular, or anything that we've covered this evening? Dave, um, well, that point on resurrection um, makes me think about, you know, one of the things that um, is an unfortunate um, way that we're often characterized as not celebrating Easter because <laughs> we make every Lord's Day a celebration of the resurrection. And it's a, it's a shame we don't think about it more that way as opposed to kind of the not celebrating the formal, uh, you know, Easter the, the way uh, evangelical churches tend to do. Right, 
Right, or to put it better, we celebrate Easter every Sunday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Um, that uh, that's Resurrection Day, and uh, and and the fact is, we need that celebration way more than once a year. Uh, that's the way the Lord intends to nourish his people in resurrection life by having a weekly celebration of the resurrection. Yeah, and just the number, the the. it's so challenging, unfortunately, to explain it. You get people looking at you like you're crazy, <laughs> with, and, but I like the way you just put it. <laughs> All right, Paul, good point. I see the chambers are ready to contribute something here. It's interesting, Dave, this week, the Bible study that I'm taking part in at the seminary in Ecclesiastes um, was in chapter nine, and the focus was on the inevitability of death. Ah. Um, One of the quotes, I read that, and then I was reading this with mortality, and it kind of gelled together. Um, Dr. John was talking about Jonathan Edwards, his his resolutions that he had, and one of them was that um, he would think much on the occasion of his death and dying and the common circumstances which attended. And um, what Dr. Jean brought out was how the focus we have in our society today is doing everything we can to prevent that from happening. Yes. But the, really the focus needs to be on looking toward that. And I think tonight that mortality and looking at it from that perspective of, of the resurrection, it's just really encouraging to think about it that way and to think about as Christians, what our focus is and yes. not fearful. Yes. Great so, point. Great, great point. Other, I see Paul has put in the chat a, a link. I didn't know I'd posted the five points, Paul. <laughs> I guess oh, I, yeah, I meant to mention that. I, yep. I, I guess I need to go to the website more frequently. <laughs> uh, but there, uh, folks, if you go to the chat, you can. Paul's put a link in there that'll take you to the New York. Uh, I mean, the New Hope uh, website where the five points are posted. Any other questions or comments? These are some wonderful uh, teachings tonight from the scripture, especially perseverance and mortality. And uh, I, so I hope it's an encouragement to you and uh, will help to fit you for your service to the Lord until uh, next Resurrection Day. <laughs> so if there are no other questions, I will close this in prayer. Father, we're grateful for uh, the flood of light that comes into the darkness of our lives from your word. We again thank you for Dr. Packer's faithful ministry, uh, his eye always toward your glory and the good of his, your people. Uh, He would have us know you better and know how to love and serve you better. And we do pray that uh, we would be profitable servants and that tonight's 
considerations would lead us to be more faithful and better able to cope with uh, life in this world uh, and to be people with a living hope. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.